Hello everyone, and today we have a special guest, Bismarck from Military Aviation History. Hello everybody. And we will talk about the differences between the Eastern and Western Front in terms of air warfare in the Second World War. So at first we need to look at the general differences. So we begin basically in 1941 to 1945 for the Eastern Front, and for the Western Front we focus mainly on 1944 to 1945. And one major difference is basically the terrain, because the Eastern Front was way wider and, and bigger, so we have different approaches on how to deal with the issue, whereas the Western Front was rather small in comparison. So these resulted in various differences, and I think Bismarck knows more on this. What is your take on this? All right, so when we look at the Western Front, uh, what we see throughout the war is essentially a strategic operation. We have these brief moments of uh, tactical combat um, where the, the, the uh, air forces, uh, the Luftwaffe particularly, is used in a tactical domain. Uh, what comes to mind here is, of course, the Battle of France and later on also, in a sense, the Battle of Britain. However, that kind of dies down relatively quickly. By 1940, we don't really have uh, that many tactical strikes anymore on the Western Front, and it really becomes a battle of uh, sending you know, bomber formations into enemy territory, trying to destroy uh, industry, um, harbors, uh, ground installations, or indeed uh, targeting cities. This starts to escalate as the war goes on into 1941, 1942, 1943, and so on, until we arrive at the point that we're going to look at, and that's 1944 and 1945, where, of course, we all have this mental image in, in our head, these huge bomber formations, Allied bomber formations coming in day and day, day and night, uh, trying to destroy German industry in German cities. And uh, except for some brief moments... Uh, the Luftwaffe really doesn't have an answer, a strategic answer to that. There is a sort of resurgence uh, of bomber operations over Britain by the Germans in the mid-war period. Um, that doesn't amount to much, also because the Germans are targeting the wrong targets. Um, but overall, it very quickly on the West becomes a battle of fighters, that is German fighters, versus uh, Allied bombers. It is not so much a fight, uh, fighter on fighter, trying to wrestle away air superiority. Um, that is, of course, an integral part of it as well. Uh, should, should be mentioned as well. But for the Germans, what is really important in the late war period is shooting down bombers. On the whole, whenever uh, 109s or 190s go up into the air and try to uh, intercept uh, B-17s, B-24s, they really just focus on the bombers. They tangle a little, little bit with the escorts and they don't do much more with them, but they really go for the bombers and try to shoot those guys down because they know that's what destroys our own industry. And they also know that when they shoot down a single bomber, the damage inflicted is way greater than even if they shut down two or three fighters. So that's in essence kind of a, I wouldn't really call it an attritional war, but it's a very, spe very uh, specific kind of fight where uh, the, this kind of image that we have of tactical strikes and so on doesn't really fit in. Now, on the Eastern Front, this is obviously completely different. In the Eastern Front, uh, for, for one thing, 
we have very little strategic strikes overall. The Germans sometimes fly to Gorky, for example, to the factories over there that's beyond Moscow, to the east of Moscow. And they bomb Moscow a little bit early on. But very quickly, those kind of missions are uh, abandoned and their medium bombers, so the JU-88s and the Heinkel 111s, are more and more used in a tactical role as well. And of course, the Russians with their IL-2s and with their Peshkas and you you name it, uh, focus very heavily on tactical strikes. Yeah, from what I read is that that Stalin uh, from the Spanish Civil War dropped the lesson that basically strategic bombing is too inaccurate. And so there was a major focus on on tactical close air support. This is why the IL-2 was then developed. And additionally, what 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 the main difference is on the Eastern Front, basically both the Luftwaffe and Red Army Air Force focus on supporting ground operations. They basically become vehicles for the armies or flying artillery in a sense. Whereas on the on the Western Front, the, the Air Forces act way more independently, although we should note that the US Army Air Force was still an Army Air Force. But the whole difference is, is visible in that part. This is also why on the Eastern Front, it's usually focused on local air superiority, which yeah. is quite in contrast to the Western Front, because in the Western Front, in the final year of the war, basically in 1944, 1945, there's complete, basically, air supremacy by the Western Allies, and the Germans can, the army can only move during the night, usually. Everything else would, would just get shot down, shot down by interdiction strikes. Whereas on the, even 1945, the German army can march on the Eastern Front during daylight because there's less focus on interdiction and way more focus on close air support. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, I'm just going to go over those points again. So with Stalin, t- you know, what, what Stalin with the, the Red Army or essentially the, the Soviets took away from, from the Spanish War is quite interesting. Uh, in the 1930s, there was, in fact, a, a rather vibrant... Um, aviation scene in the uh, in the Soviet Union and this is in fact you know something that is in many countries going on at the moment but specifically with the Russians they come up with all sorts of designs and all sorts of planes and and they go into the war in 1941 when when operation Barbarossa happens they go into the war with near a circus like variety of aircraft they have some strategic bombers who in fact very early on also uh, make an attack on Berlin it's kind of act of defiance, you could say, just like the Doolittle Raid was when the Americans launched that against Tokyo. And they, they also have close air support aircraft. They also have um, tactical bombers. They have naval bombers. They, they have everything. The problem is they have a little bit too much and not everything is exactly great. So later on and throughout the war, they really realized the importance of tactical strikes. And as you said, on the Eastern Front, the Russians specifically focus on frontline combat yeah i i believe there is this kind of approximate estimate that was given at once is that between 80 to 90 percent of uh, red air force um activity was within 10 kilometers of the front lines so they never really went in as you said in, in interdiction strikes trying to hit something behind the front lines 
That did happen occasionally, but not very often. And this also allows, of course, the Germans then to, to maneuver behind the front lines and send troops from A to B. Um, in, in the West, that doesn't really happen, just like you said. The Germans are very dependent on the weather situation. We see this in the Ardennes Offensive, where they initially have quite a lot of success. Then the weather clears and the Allied Air Force comes into play. And even though all those those ground attackers, the, the kills that the, these attacks supposedly did on the Panzers are vastly exaggerated. But what it does create is, is kind of this, this essence of, yeah, if we move during the day, they're going to attack us and we are going to suffer losses or damaged equipment and so on. So let's just move at night. And obviously that, that brings with it a lot of complications. Now with the topic of local air superiority, this is where it gets really interesting in my opinion. Uh, on the whole, the numerical superiority that the Allies have in the West is staggering, especially by mid to late 1944. The Germans, even if they try to pull all their assets within one area, they're not going to be close to the amount of fighters that the Allies have in that area. It's just not possible. That is why they they, they kind of focus on these quick attacks on these bomber formations, get in, shoot a bomber down, shoot a second bomber down, get out, and so forth. But when it comes to tactical air, that's absolutely impossible. On the Eastern Front, however, the Germans... Even though there is also this air superiority that the Russians have, the front lines are so vast that even though the Soviets have so many pilots and so many planes, the Germans are able to wrestle away air superiority once in a while, local air superiority once in a while. Um, I think the, the best example is, um, I believe, during the Kursk, during the Battle of Kursk, where the Germans did establish local air superiority at some points in time. And this, you might you know, say, oh, this sounds good, you know, a couple of days, local air support. No, no, no. We're talking about a couple of hours. They go in, they uh, defeat, you know, all the elements that are uh, there by the, from the Russians, Soviet uh, Air Force. They intercept IL-2s coming in and so on, and they establish local air superiority, allowing their ground elements to advance or to retreat, whatever is, uh, is necessary at the point, and then they bug out. And the battle, of course, is probably the last real example of the German Luftwaffe being able to do so in the Eastern Front, but you do have these moments in time where there's just for a couple of minutes or even for a couple of hours, they do establish local air superiority in some areas, but it's very, very difficult. I read that there's this main difference that, for instance, the Soviets and also the Germans to a certain degree, they saw um, air superiority uh, not for the sake of air superiority itself or a fighter battle for, for the fighter battle itself, but only for to establish a ground attack to support ground forces or something that it's not for for yeah for the sake of it it's it's a different approach also can you confirm this in in the way it played out that's very much true yes um, it should also be said that when when you look at at, at air superiority in the defense of the reich the germans never have the chance of actually establishing it after these long-range kind of escorts come in. So for them, there is no thinking of, you know, we have to try to secure our airspace against the Allies because there, there was perhaps this chance they could have done it if they hadn't wasted all their planes on the Operation Bodenplatte. At that point, perhaps they could have uh, wrestled away so you know, at least contested 
uh, air superiority, uh, allied air superiority in the West. But it would have been quite a significant struggle, in my opinion. In the East, the way it played out is very much like you said. And, you know, what good is it having planes in the air at a certain point when there is nothing going on there and, you know, keeping the superiority at that when, in fact, they are needed somewhere else? And this is also why on the Eastern Front we see a lot of Yakishwaders specifically hopping from airfield to airfield and they often change you know within a matter of weeks or sometimes even days of where they're based because of where they need it most yeah the russians launch an offensive somewhere an attack okay well the yakishwada has to has to redeploy uh let's say 200 kilometers to the north and two weeks later there is a german attack going on at this in this specific town well now the yakishwada has to fly back south uh, 300 kilometers back south and act there so this, this kind of airfield hopping that we see in the East all the time doesn't happen in the West as well. Yeah, the, I, I noticed one of our notes, this major difference. You can have a, a continuous dispersion of your troops like it was on the Western Front for, for the Allies, where basically everything is covered and you have a limited amount of, of troops everywhere, or planes in this case. And on the Eastern Front was usually, there was always the Soviets mass their attacks. So on the on the periphery or on the secondary parts where they don't have anything, they pulled out their units and they were very good at disguising pulling out those units, which is to a certain kind uh, related to Maskirovka, and then mass their units where it was crucial when when they did attack or before an attack. And and this was basically you have a continuous dominance in the in the West and you have this this concentrated, basically, you could say burst attacks or burst dominance on the Eastern Front because you also, you have a, a way bigger territory. And additionally to that, what you mentioned before with the 10 kilometers, I, I read the same. And it was it was basically, from what I read, established in, in 1941 because the Soviets realized the Luftwaffe was too strong and when they flow only about 10 kilometers, they could always basically retreat. They, they flew away and then they would fly into uh, to the to the anti-aircraft defenses usually and also in some ki ki cases could trap or lead the, the Luftwaffe into an, an air defense trap. And this only changed, I think, around 1943 when there was basically an, a kind of equality in terms of doctrine, tactics and technology arrived on the Eastern Front. Yeah, 1943 is, is kind of the big year, especially with the defeat at Stalingrad, even though it's obviously a ground battle. But that's kind of often considered as the turning point, of course. But by 1943, the Soviet Air Force had largely recovered. Um, they weren't just quite there yet, but they were able to comfortably uh, wrestle with the Luftwaffe. Uh, they were able to establish air superiority, local air superiority, and quite a few parts of uh, the Eastern Front when they wanted to. Uh, they had enough material. They started to have enough uh, pilots as well to, to, to replace losses that were being suffered. And also their equipment was vastly improved. In 1941, we all know the story, Soviet equipment, it's outdated, it's bad, it doesn't work. Um, there's a lot of truth to that. On the one hand side, a lot of their equipment is in fact outdated. On the other side, their modern designs that are coming out um, are being rushed into combat with no proper production quality. 
So I think the, I read a Soviet account where they literally admitted um, this, this specific Geschwader um, that they got lag freeze. And they said about a third of the lag freeze we got in 1941, 1942 were not usable um, because they, they, they were just shoddily built and sometimes you know you we you would even like hear screws just like banging inside the wings because they weren't properly fastened they had gotten loose and, and that's kind of the build quality they had at this point by 1943 this is changing from tremendously uh the the, the russian air they they don't have the same production standards as in the west or that germany does but it's good enough and the stuff starts to work. And also the designs, they come out with the LA-5. Yes, initially LA-5 does have some problems, but uh, by the time that the LA-5F and the LA-5FN comes out, they have really a, a plane that for the purposes that they need is excellent. And that is, of course, lo- establishing local air superiority, tango with the Luftwaffe, uh, protect the ground attackers, and uh, all of that at low altitudes. Yeah, so we're talking about 2,000 meters or below. Um, some of the combat still goes up to 4,000 meters. That is roughly uh, 15, 14 or 15,000 feet for, for Imperials out there. Um, but usually it's, it's around 2,000 meters, which is roughly 6,000, 7,000 feet. About the introduction of new equipment, I, I, I read that they also employed Maskirovka in this case. And that, for instance, they, the Soviets delayed um, the introduction of many fighter planes for quite some time and then introduced them in mass. Sadly, I couldn't find any more. Do you know more about this? I'd actually have to check myself. Um, that's an interesting kind of idea. And it, it, it would be worth looking at what time frame that would be because I can, I, I, I'd have problems believing that it was like this in 1941 or 1942 or even 1943 maybe later on i could i could yeah it, it would be possible that that that, that certain uh, fighter wings were equipped with new aircraft they were kept in reserve for some time and then for one specific uh, specific operation they were all rushed to the front lines and you know they have new fighters and, and so on this would be actually be something to worth looking into i'm not quite sure on that I looked it up here again. There sadly is no information on the time frame. It, it notes, as far as the Soviet Air Forces was concerned, one very important way to implement Maskarovka consisted of choosing the right moment for introducing new weapons. To delay the deployment of advanced aircraft always implies a certain cautiousness. It means that active units have to make to do as best they can with existing types, even though they may already be obsolete. Sadly, there's yeah. no more further information. Considering what we read about Soviet aviation, and I don't mean just from Western sources, but also from Soviet sources, um, the equipment they got 1941, 1942, and even 1943 is in, in some ways you know, shoddy build quality. So in, in, in trying to you know, say like, oh yeah, we kept our fighters back because you know, we wanted to have bring them all in at once and, and so on. I find that hard to believe in, at this stage. Later on, that's definitely possible. It w- maybe maybe it would be interesting to, to look at some of the, the later fighter planes that they have. Um, but actually, that's more or less the first time I hear about this. Okay, that's very interesting. Also, you don't have uh, any accounts of the Luftwaffe just being surprised that a lot of new fighter planes showed up or something else. 
Well, uh, pilots were surprised all the time. I mean, the one thing that just comes up to my mind now is when the Soviets got Spitfires. The, uh, the Germans were completely surprised, but that's understandable because obviously, who expects a Spitfire yeah. on the on the Eastern Front? Um, but f- for example, if you if you go with uh, let's let's say the the Yaks, right? Uh, you have a Yak One, you have a Yak Seven, and suddenly the Yak Three comes out. Um, the differences between the airframe they exist not that obvious in me initially. So th- the way the Germans realized it, in a sense, is when they shot something down and they looked at it, it was like, oh, this is new. Um, or when they tangled with it and, and, and they realized, hey, that that thing can pull maneuvers, the other one couldn't. Um, and then they realized, oh, okay, they have new fighter plane. There is some reconnaissance and some intelligence at play, of course, when they hear, okay, well, the the, the, the Russians or the Soviets are working on a certain thing at the moment. We don't know when they're going to bring it in, but they will eventually... I'm not quite sure how much of that information was shared with the frontline pilots, to be honest. I, I, I don't think there would have been a lot of uh, intelligence sharing up until the point when it was necessary. Uh, another interesting point, what, what I read was basically that due to the strong focus on, on, on the Eastern Front on tactical aviation and also used in an operational sense, that the Soviet Air Force, to, to a large degree, I mean, it lacked strategic bombers and also reconnaissance planes and other elements for, for a long part. So basically, it's it's mainly focused on fighters and clo- close air support. And also, the ranges are, are lower and also the payloads are quite different in terms of equipment. Yeah, that's right. Um, the Soviets do have some strateg- uh, some planes that are have the capability of acting in a strategic role but not a lot of them. And the designs are, let's say, not the best. On, on paper, they look good. Some of them in practice, eh. Um, but, but, but what they do really well is uh, fighter designs, uh, which the, designs, the Soviet designs of fighters are actually pretty good. Nobody gives them credit for it, um, but they have some really, really stellar designs, especially once the, like I already said, the later LA-5s come in and, and the later Yak versions. They, they uh, For what is needed on the Eastern Front, that is a low-altitude, high-performance fighter, absolutely excellent. What The one thing that you haven't mentioned there is anti-shipping. And the, the Soviets do, especially in the Baltic, there is some, some contestation. I'm not sure if that's the word, but you get it. Um, they, they do contest uh, the control that the Axis have in the Baltic Sea, and they use, of course, uh, for example, Peshkas, uh, so P2 naval bombers, or well, used in a naval role. And at that point, the Peshka um, is exactly sort of a, a really interesting kind of aircraft. It's It has a very good performance. It has a competitive bomb load, and it performs really well in the roles that the Soviets needed to perform, and that is anti-shipping, and in a way also... Um, a little bit of cast involved in there. And uh, the Germans, on the other hand, they, of course, have the BF-110. And the BF-110, after the kind of fiasco in the Battle of Britain, on the Eastern Front, it starts making a name for itself again, and that is in a uh, fighter-bomber role. The Germans retrofit a lot of their uh, fighter planes, the BF-110 fighter or fighter layouts, let's say, with extra armor plating and so on, and put them into fighter bomber role, and it does really rather well on the Eastern Front there. Up until a point, later on, 1943, 1944, uh, the BF-110s aren't really used in that role anymore. Uh, they are 
rather being pulled back to the defense of the Reich, especially for as night fighters. But you can see that you know these these planes have a very dedicated role, and they perform rather well. For the Germans, there's also a little bit of anti-shipping in the west, of course, which on the eastern front, up in the north, not just in the Baltic, but up in the north at uh, Murmansk, there's, for example, JG-5, um, Eismeerjäger, that's their nickname, and they are um, hitting shipping that goes into Murmansk and comes out of Murmansk. And what is interesting about this gesh- uh, Geschwader, this happens once in a while on the on during the war, but they also have, for example, a dedicated Zerstörerstaffel with them. So it's a normal fighter, uh, fighter wing, but attached to them, there's kind of this auxiliary uh, BF-110 uh, staffel, uh, and uh, they they are also used in an anti-shipping role. So so there is a lot of flexibility, let's say, on the Eastern Front uh, in the way that Yakish waters are being used and set up that you don't see exactly in the West. One one question I have, I, I came across two things. Basically, the the notion that on the on the Soviet side usually repair was done by replacement. So the planes were basically replaced instead of repaired on the front lines, which put a different kind, which reduced the, the maintenance and logistic units. Do you know how this was done in the West or do you have a better example on this, how this was performed? Well, for the Germans specifically, the the Germans had this kind of percentage-wise uh, or percentage-based rather a repair system. So if a plane, uh, it, it kind of goes into intervals, right? So 20, 40, 60, 80, and 100% damage. The 100% means it's completely gone. 80% means it's essentially also completely gone, but you can salvage a, a few things from it. 60% means substantive repairs has to be set, sent back to the front lines, uh, excuse me, not to the front lines, to the factories. And then... Um, uh, sometimes, sometimes it's even to the point where you can't repair it, but you also salvage the equipment. And then forty percent. This is where it gets interesting. So anything below twenty percent or twenty percent is usually something that could be repaired if the local uh, geschwader had the means. Could be repaired at the front lines. Forty um, percent means that actually already some substantial damage has happened. And sometimes they're being sent back to the factory or to workshops. Sometimes it could be done at home. And that, with that, I mean the airfield, the local airfield where the Geschwader is based. However, it's also a question of are spare parts available or not. And one of the big things that that some people perhaps don't think about is that an aircraft is useless without an engine and anything that comes with the engine. So if you have, for example, let's let's go with the uh, the Fokker Wolves. Yeah, the first Fokker Wolves that come in the uh, 190A1. The this is actually quite interesting because everybody gives the the Soviet a kind of criticism that their engines weren't working all that well in the early war, but with the BF one uh, excuse me with the Focke Wolf one ninety A one with the uh, BMW eight hundred one that they had, the life expectancy of that engine was twenty minutes in when it came out. Uh, excuse me, not twenty minutes, twenty hours, twenty yeah, hours. Yeah, I was like a bit concerned um, here. <laughs> yes. And and sometimes it, it because you know obviously play, uh, pilots use and abuse the engines to the max. Sometimes you wouldn't even get ten hours. So when there is no replacement engine, the plane stays on the ground and you can't do anything. For the Allies, I believe that overall they they were a little bit better organized when it came to repairs than 
the Germans, or in, in a sense that they could do more on their local airfields than the Germans could. But I'd, I'd have to look into exactly how they were managing it. Also, because of the distances involved of bringing new planes in and so on, I presume that a lot of the uh, the things they did is similar to the Germans in a way that, and, and maybe even a mix between what the Germans did and the Soviets did is that the new equipment kind of replaced the old equipment, but the old equipment was also salvaged to the to the point where where it could be salvaged. And I, I did the uh, the Soviet Air Force did that as well. I mean, if if you have a plane that cannot fly anymore, but there's still a lot of equipment in it that you can use, absolutely, you know, just 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 rip everything out and uh, and push the the carcass aside and you know wait for the new planes to come in. And one one final question: I encountered that the, that the Soviets build up guard units also for for the fighter arm, for instance, and. Is this something similar on the Western Allies side that they had um, special elite squadrons for fighter planes or something or, or air armies or something? Because we all know about the, those guard units all the time. And we also know that the Wehrmacht, for instance, had several elite units. But I've, I've actually never encountered something on, on the Western Allies side that I can remember. Do you know anything about this? Was, was there... A, certain difference or were there some elite units but they were not explicitly declared as such i think it's mainly to do with that they're not explicitly declared but also that there was a lot of homogeneity what we have to remember is that for the germans and for the soviets there was for the soviets a little bit more than the germans but there was no real rotation of pilots so pilots that fought at the beginning of the war unless they died they fought until the end and they had very few breaks in between And for the Soviets, this is also true. However, they rotate the squadrons a little bit more than the Germans and the pilots a little bit more than the Germans. As for the guard units, on paper, yes, they're supposed to be these kind of elite squadrons. And it is true that, for example, some of them got the best equipment, but not all. There are some guard units that actually fly with outdated equipment. Um, there is also It's also true that they sometimes had a little bit more training On the whole, however, I wouldn't really say that they were elite just because they were guard. Uh, the, 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 there, there is a certain certain discrepancy between all these these different uh, units, and some of them perform really, really well, and some of these guards units don't perform that well at all. But also that depends on the context that they're being used in. Going back to the Allies again, there are of course squadrons that everybody talks about and, and says, "Oh, you know, these guys did really, really well." And one of the examples that I guess you could give this Tuscany air pilots, everybody you know says, that, oh yeah, they were the best at escorting bombers and so on and so forth. A lot of that is you know is disputable, and I think the overall in the West, what the, what the Western allies did really well is create a homogeneity um, between their fighter pilots and their fighter wings, so that everybody has a certain standard that they will perform at. Uh, everybody has a certain time frame that they have to fight in. And everybody gets rest when they need it. And that is, I think, the big advantage that the, the Western allies have over, for example, the Soviets that, that do rest their pilots once in a while. Um, and definitely an advantage they had over the Germans. So in a way, it's similar to how they, they, how they organized at the, the front line, that they have a, a large amount of troops everywhere. In contrast to the Eastern Front, again, where you have a focus on mass points of a lot of 
planes at certain times for to supporting offensive or supporting defense so basically the west was was more yeah as you said homogenic in in many ways in comparison to the eastern front where you always have dispersed and concentrations yeah i mean in in the way when when the bombers attack germany of course that's a concentrated attack right but this is something that happens on a nearly day basis on different targets that it it is as you say kind of dispersed around the area and uh, and um in that way it the year for the the air war not just because it it happens at a different altitude which is substantial of a difference um but it's just because it it kind of you know sometimes it's here sometimes it's there um and it's uh, but at the same time it's kind of happening everywhere it's a very different context to to uh, what we have on the eastern front now now as a final point we we started with terrain and i think there's also some differences since you mentioned that in the west that the altitudes were usually higher so what were the different requirements to have a good or excellent plane on the western or eastern front well if if you, if you want a good requirement for the early war on the western front uh for what's necessary in the west um you can for example look at the spitfire yeah spitfire is a really good defensive aircraft it climbs really well gets up to altitude contests uh entangles with the germans during the battle of britain and um that's something that for example is kind of the standard of what happens uh, to be a requirement for a defensive fighter uh throughout the war now the spitfire isn't really used in a defensive role all that much after the battle of britain sometimes yes but mainly no and you have uh, on the german side of course the bf-109s and the focke 190s they have to get to altitude quick in order to be able to attack the bomber formations and later on also the escorts um, over over the reich so climbing performance and and getting to a high altitude fast is important and it, it's 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 really, really rather complicated and, and also when it comes to engine design um, of creating a engine that performs well, you know, at all these different altitudes. So what we see with the, the Western allies is that usually their engines perform really well, let's say at 4,000 meters or above 6,000 meters is, is sometimes a, a good reference. On the East, completely different. And here the Germans are a little bit of a dilemma, especially once they are on the defensive is because the Soviets, a lot of their engines are good for low altitude. Once they go above 2,000, 4,000 meter, their engine's uh, performance uh, suffers big time. For the purposes that they have, though, that doesn't really matter because they're doing the attacking and the Germans, even if they launch tactical strikes, have to go down low. So in a defensive role on the Eastern Front and in an offensive role, low altitude is king. Whereas on the West, of course, because pretty much everything that happens in 1944 and 1945 with a few exceptions is bomber based strategic bomber based it's all at high altitude so that's one of the things that is kind of this crass difference and for the germans they're caught on two sides on the on the one hand side they need an aircraft that is good at low altitude um some of the you know the focke wolf 190a a's and the antons actually relatively good at that role um but they also need something that climbs up very very fast and very high um, the 109s again come spring to mind, but then of course there's the, a certain um, problem there because the 109s on the whole, uh, when it comes to offensive armament, and this is another requirement I guess, um, suffer a little bit. They have one central mounted cannon, 
which yes, you can put a 30 millimeter there once you have the B109G6, but you really want to have as much firepower as possible. And here the AD, the Focke Wolves are again better because sometimes they have two to four, um, to four uh, 20 mils. And yes, of course you can put gun pods on your aircraft and so on. Pilots usually hated that, they didn't like it. Um, it really makes your, your aircraft into a, to, into a dog uh, that you can't maneuver all that well and so forth. Um, one of the interesting aspects that I, I think we should close with, however, is that on the Eastern Front, yeah, it, it's really, really peculiar because some designs that are completely outdated from a performance and even from, from a, you know, just a casual observance are completely outdated, perform really well on the Eastern Front. So, for example, the, 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 the example I would make here is the German Henschel 123. This is a biplane. And this is a biplane the Germans used during the invasion of Poland and uh, also in Spain. And it's kind of the, their first real Schlachtflugzeug. Yeah? So it's a, a kind of used in the same role as you would use an IL-2 or a Henschel um, 129 in the way that it's used directly on the front line against elements that are there. It's not a dive bomber, just like the Ju-87. It holds a relatively smaller bomb load compared to the Ju-87. But even by 1944 and 1945, on the Eastern Front, some commanders ask why the Henschel 123 is not being produced in more substantial numbers. And the problem is that the Germans have already destroyed all their tooling for this aircraft around about 1940, 1941, because they thought the design is completely outdated. But for the Eastern Front, where this very rugged kind of biplane with a relatively, well, it's, it's a small bomb load, you could say, but it's a relatively good bomb load for what, it's, uh, what it needs to do. Um, and it, it can really just attack right where it's needed on the front lines. Um, they, don't, they don't have that anymore, even though they, the, the, the army and, and, and in a way the Luftwaffe is asking, well, well, maybe we should introduce it again. So this is something that quite humorous in, in a sense and quite ironic is that even though some planes are completely outdated from an objective standpoint, uh, when you look at the context that they're being used in, they're actually pretty good, and people are asking for them to to be uh, reintroduced. It's quite interesting, considering that on the on the Pacific theater, also the the biplanes, at least as Kamikazes, were extremely successful. From in, in those few instances, they were used. So this is always a quite interesting disparity that's going on between the high tech, the jet, and the biplane in the end of the Second World War. Yeah, exactly. Well. That was very interesting. Thank you very much, Bismarck, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So if you want to know more about Luftwaffe and Air Warfare, check out Bismarck's channel, Military Aviation History, on YouTube. I can highly recommend it. I worked with him several times and I always enjoyed it. So, and I would say, everyone, thank you for listening and see you next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.